If you have a Bible, could you turn to, you guessed it, Matthew 21. <laughs> Go to Matthew 21. That's where we are this morning, and we're not doing the whole chapter. We're doing a good portion of it, and uh, I'm going to... Um, I'm going to read this whole passage. I, I, I hesitate because it takes a while, but I, I just think, what am I going to cut out when I read this? And so I'm going to read fairly quickly, try to follow along as best as you can. And uh, we're going to start at verse 1, obviously Matthew 21. I'm going to read down to verse 27. It says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, that then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal, of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and said hello to everyone. No, <laughs> he drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. And he left them, went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. And when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I will, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, 
Where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, We do not know. He said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's commit our time again into the Lord's hands. Father, this morning I just ask God that you would that you would give me strength and grace, Lord, and, and Father, that your spirit would speak through me this morning from your word. And Father, really this is why we're here this morning, to hear you speak to us, God, to hear your word um, brought into our hearts and lives in some way that it would make a difference for us. God, you know, you know everyone here this morning, there's not one person here that is not known to you, the heart, the inner person, the soul. You know what our struggles are. You know what the issues are that we're dealing with. You know if there's someone here this morning or someone listening, the uh, Lord that doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and I pray for that person. But Father, whatever our need is, we, we just ask that you would speak and that you would meet that need in some way. Today, we look to you. We want to hear your voice. We want you to speak. And Father, I just ask God for that in my weakness, Lord, that you would be strong in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's uh, let's just dive right into this here and uh, think about what is traditionally referred to as Palm Sunday, and we're a little bit ahead of it on the calendar, but I'm not going to get too much into that. But this is where it appears in the Gospel of Matthew. So, so this is Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. This is literally before he's going to go to the cross. Like we're talking days now before the cross. That's how close it is. And there's a lot of chapters, a lot of stuff still to come before we get to the cross in Matthew's gospel. But all of that writing is compressed into literally about a week or a few days before the cross. So this is what, this is right, this, this is imminent. It's going to happen at any moment. Just going back to chapter 20 and verse 17, and we were there last week, and we noted this, says now Jesus going up to Jerusalem. We know that he's in Jericho. If you go to verse 29, it mentions that as they were leaving Jericho, there were the healing of the two blind men. So he's in Jericho and he's going up to Jerusalem. We come to verse 1 of chapter 21. They drew near Jerusalem at the Mount of Olives. So they have walked, they have walked the Jericho road. Now, I think there's probably a lot of you here this morning that know something about the Jericho road. Some of you maybe have been to Israel and you've walked the Jericho Road. I have never done that. I have heard about it. I know people that have been there, that have been on it. It's different now than it would have been in Jesus' day, but there's a lot of similarities, and uh, there's a lot to take out of that. If, if you know anything about the, the history, the geography, if you've been there, if you studied this before, there is a ride. When it says going up, it's very literal going up. They're going to go from literally below sea level, I think it's 800 and some feet below sea level in Jericho, and they are going to make their way literally up over 3,000 feet, 3,300 feet of elevation going to Jericho. So they're, they're going up. 25 kilometers this road is, 25 kilometers that they're going to walk. And one, and I call it a road, it was not really what we think about as a road. Now the roads were a little bit sketchy coming here this morning, not quite the road to Jericho, but it was a little dicey in the car. They had no cars, they didn't have paved roads, they had nothing like that. If, if, you, if you think about it, and I've seen pictures of it, this, this Jericho road, it is literally more like a trail, like a mountain trail. 
There are parts that this trail winds its way along the side of cliffs. So, so this was a dangerous road. This was not, as I said, what we think about as a road. This was a dangerous trail through desert, incredible, dry uh, desert, dangerous, difficult, not easy, elevation, going up, tiring, and along the way in the rocks, and this is like barren land, this is like desert, it's rocks and it's hills, there are robbers and there are thieves. It was notorious for that. Hence the story of the Good Samaritan on the way to Jericho being robbed. That was something that they would have understood clearly in their culture. Yeah, if you take that road, you've got a good likelihood that something bad is going to happen to you. And this is the road, think about this. This is the road that Jesus chooses to enter Jerusalem on. There were other roads that he could have come into Jerusalem on. And I don't think it is a coincidence that Jesus chooses the most difficult way to enter Jerusalem right before he's going to go to the cross. Now, Jesus knew what was coming. We were thinking about that this morning in the Lord's Supper and some of the thoughts that were shared that Jesus knew as he gathered with his disciples what was going to take place. And if you go back to Matthew 20, 17, and we referred to it last week, he's going up to Jerusalem. He takes the 12 disciples aside. We're going to Jerusalem, and we're going to be warmly received by the crowd. And they're going to throw their clothes down. They're going to throw the palm branches down. And we're going to have an awesome time. And I'm going to set the city free. That's not what he says, right? J Jesus knew what was coming. He, he says, the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests, to the scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him to the Gentiles, to mock and to scourge and to crucify. They're going to crucify me when I go to Jerusalem. So, so there's no illusion in the mind of Jesus going to Jerusalem as to what is going to, he knows exactly what is going to take place. And he takes this long, difficult road, this dangerous road with the disciples. I think it's in Mark's gospel. He's going ahead of them. And they're like, what is going on? And they're trying to keep up with them. And they're so afraid when they see the intensity in the face of the Lord Jesus going to Jerusalem. It's like something is consuming him. Something has captured him and is driving him there. And they don't understand what's going on because they haven't been listening to what Jesus said. I'm going there and I'm going to die. And I'm going to die on a cross. But then he adds, and it's so important, isn't it? That on the third day, I will rise again. He's going to rise. He knows what's coming. And so he goes to Jerusalem, he asks for the donkey, we read the account later, he gets on this donkey. It, it is quoted in verse 5, this passage from Zechariah, chapter 9 and verse 9. It, it, here's the quote, literally out of Zechariah, Behold, your king is coming to you, he is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. That was not a completely bizarre thing for someone to ride on a donkey. You know, for us, if we saw someone riding down streets of Ottawa on a donkey, we would think that was really weird, right? But, but in a certain culture and in a certain place, that wouldn't be out of, it wouldn't be weird, and we wouldn't think it was strange, and it wasn't completely strange for someone to be riding on a donkey. What, what is interesting is that, well, there's a lot of things that are interesting here. Before I get ahead of myself, let me just follow what I've got in my outline here. This, this was a fulfillment of prophecy, obviously, right? And so Jesus is doing this, and he knows exactly what is going on. It is all part of God's plan. And so he is, he is fulfilling, literally, the word of God that was prophesied about him. And notice that the reference 
in Zechariah 9.9 says, your king is coming to you. He's your king. I, I'm convinced that some of you may disagree about this, and that's fine. We can agree to disagree. I'll still lo love you anyway, and uh, we can argue later. We don't have to argue, though. Let's not argue. But anyway, I'm convinced that the crowd knew that this was the prophecy, and I'm convinced that they knew here he is, and, and they're thinking he's the king. <laughs> here he's coming on a donkey, and they're thinking Zechariah 9.9. They think this is it. This is the moment we have been waiting for. And the king is coming, and the king is coming into the city. He comes, though, and, and, the, and the, the, the significance of riding the donkey clearly obviously speaks to that aspect of him being a servant. It is interesting that the prophecy says lowly. He is just in having salvation lowly. He's in the low place as the servant. Remember what we talked about last week at the end of, end of chapter 20? Yet it, it, in, yeah, verse 27, whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He is coming as a servant into the city, lowly, riding on a donkey. He's not on a great horse. He's not on a white horse that's going to happen someday when he comes, when you go to the book of Revelation. We're not there yet. That day is not there yet. So he comes lowly on the donkey, fulfilling prophecy, but they're, they're picking up on this. I'm convinced they know what's going on. They know the symbolism of it. They see the prophecy. He is bringing salvation and so for them, there is an expectation. There's this growing, rising expectation of what Jesus is going to do. Our brother mentioned it. Rennie mentioned it in his opening. What they were thinking, right, what, what, what he's going to do for them, that, he, that he's going to deliver them from the Romans and the oppression of the Romans. Now, he, he mentioned the word Hosanna as well and the meaning of the word Hosanna, I'm just going to adjust it a little bit, and it does mean save us, but it, it more literally is translated this way, save now. Save now. That's what they're saying. Save now. Save us now from the Romans. That is what they are crying as Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem. They were convinced this was the moment of their deliverance from the Romans. Son of David, they call him. There's Messiah, the Christ, the anointed, the chosen one. That is what is in their mind. And they are literally convinced, this crowd, this multitude, it's not everyone in the city of Jerusalem. We know that, right? There's obviously people there that don't know what's going on, that aren't seeing it, but there are many. There are multi a multitude. How many that was, we don't know. Was it hundreds? Was it thousands? They're thinking, this is it. This is the moment that the Christ has come. And the Messiah, and he's going to deliver us from our oppressors. And so the response is one of a conquering hero or to a conquering king as they take their coats and they lay them on the road. They take the palm branches. It doesn't mention the palm here, but the other gospels, I think John's gospel mentions the palm. The significance of the palm branch, if you research the history of the palm branch, it is connected with victory, military victory. And there's other aspects to it, but that's one of them. And there's no doubt in their mind right now, this is it. 
He's going to go in. He, he's going to deal with these people, and he's going to deliver us. And there's this incredible upswell of worship and of honor that they are now giving to Jesus as they are in their minds thinking, this is it. He's going to save us. He's going to deliver us from the Romans. He's going to set up his kingdom, and he's going to reign here from Jerusalem over Israel. And we know that's coming, and this is the moment. That's the salvation that they are expecting. But that was not the salvation he was coming to bring to them that day. And so in their mind, it's saved now. And good thought, true, yes, he is the Christ. They've got so many things lining up here. He is the anointed. He is the king of kings. He is one day going to reign from Jerusalem. One day he will deal with all the oppressors, and he will rule injustice over this world. That day is coming. <laughs> but their timing was off. Maybe, well, at least 2,000 years almost, right, by our counting. We're not quite to 2,000 yet from the ascension of Jesus to heaven, but it's getting close to that. And maybe it'll be longer. We don't know how much longer it's going to be, right, before this will literally be fulfilled. The thing that they're thinking that day he's going to do, there's a day coming, brothers and sisters, he is going to do that. And he won't be riding a donkey. As I said earlier, in Revelation 19, we read of him coming on a white horse, the one who is faithful and true, and there will be war, and he will eventually and inevitably win that and establish himself as King of Kings and Lord of Lords over this world. That day is coming. They, they had the right, they had it right, kind of, right? In, but the timing, huge. What salvation then was he coming to bring? Because he was coming to bring a salvation, right? He pauses at one point in the journey. The timing is a little bit different in Matthew's gospel with this. But just, just if you want, if you want to flip back to Luke's gospel, and we're going to come right back to Matthew 21, but in Luke's gospel chapter 19, I love this, this account here. It, you can just picture, you can just feel the moment as Jesus pauses, it says in verse 41, as he drew near, and so here he is coming near to the city of Jerusalem, same day, same incident as we have in Matthew 21. What does it say? It says he saw the city, he wept over the city. He was weeping. This is an interesting word, this word weeping here. There are two kinds of in my study, when you find the word wept in the New Testament or weeping, there are two, two, ang or, uh, two different meanings for it. What, what, one is a quiet sobbing. So, so someone could be weeping and they can be quietly, you know, kind of trying to contain it and the tears coming down. And it's this quiet sobbing. Sometimes you have that word translated weep in English, but it's, it's different in the Greek. That's the meaning of it. But this one, this one's different. This one where he wept over the city is a loud wailing. He is wailing as he looks at the city and his heart is broken. Why? Because what does he know? He says in verse 42, if you had known, even you especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, it's like, here I am, I'm the one. But, but where is he going? They are hidden from your eyes. In other words, what is Jesus saying? This city will reject me. Oh, come on. Wait a minute, Lord. 
We're laying our coats down. We're putting the palm branches down. We are praising you. We are saying, Hosanna, what, what is going on? The disciples, I, I often think of the disciples as Jesus stops and he starts wailing in the middle of this triumphant entry, so to speak, into the city of Jerusalem. For days will come upon you, verse 43, when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, close you in on every side, level you, your children within you to the ground. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Generally speaking, although there was a crowd there that was acknowledging who he was, generally speaking, the city would reject him. We know that because they nailed him to a cross only days after this. So what salvation is he bringing? Well, it's not a deliverance from the Romans. It's not for better government, as the campaigners often say, but this, this king will bring better government for real and legitimate. No, it's not that, as our brother said. It, what, what it is is a salvation of the soul. It's the spirit. It's his spiritual deliverance that he's coming to bring. And, and the very thing that they're going to do to him is going to enable him to accomplish that salvation. They will reject him and they will nail him to a cross. And on that cross, a battle will be fought and a battle will be won. And so, brothers and sisters, it was really a triumphant entry, right? But not to the deliverance that they were thinking, but to a greater Deliverance, far more significant deliverance, freedom from sin and death and the consequence of sin and into eternal life with God and the ability to have a relationship with God, forgiveness of sins, to know him. That's the battle he's going to fight and he's going to win at the cross and in the tomb where he will come out of that tomb triumphant. <laughs> Praise God for that salvation that he brought. So, Great thinking on their part, but the timing was off, and there was something bigger that he had in mind that he was going to accomplish. Then there's some house cleaning that Jesus has to do. And he goes into the temple to win friends as he goes into the temple, right? I really want the people to like me. <laughs> no. He goes into the temple to deal with truth and things that were wrong. And in verse 12, when Jesus went into the temple of God, he drove out all those who brought and sold in the temple. Again, I always think of the disciples. It's like, this is the moment, right? They're all embracing him. He's the king, and they're bowing down, and now he's going to set up the kingdom. And the disciples are thinking the same thing. And then he stops, and he's weeping over the city. And it's like, Lord, no, no, don't do that now. The time, And then he comes into the city, and it's okay, this is it now. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. He's going to, and he goes, and he starts wreaking havoc in the temple. I often think of them, think, oh, God, Jesus, don't do that. You've got the people like right here. Don't do that. But he does what needed to be done. I put down in the notes there, holy anger. Anger is sometimes okay, you know. I think we have an idea that in our day that anger is always wrong and anger is always sinful. Some, sometimes anger isn't sinful. Sometimes it's necessary. 
here, here is a case where we see holy anger in the heart of the Lord Jesus as he, think of what, what's going on here. It mentions that he drove out, okay, all those who bought and sold in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers. You've probably seen films depicting this scene. And honestly, probably if you've watched that and some kind of a, 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 some film producer trying to present the life of Jesus in the Gospels and he goes in, it probably in the moment you're like, it kind of is a little bit shocking, right? But I want you to imagine what it would have been like to be right there with, with the gentle Jesus as this anger is poured out on these people. John's Gospel says that he made a whip of cords, a whip of cords. He took rope, I don't know whether he did this ahead of time or when he did this, or he took this rope and he starts whipping them to drive them out of the temple. Now, what would happen to someone who did that today? 911, right? And the police would show up and they would arrest this individual for assault and they would take him away. This, 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 the intensity and the violence of this moment sink into your heart here. Just, just let it do that. It, it kind of almost goes counter to everything we think about Jesus and who he is and what he represents. This is the moment in all the Gospels that seems to go counter to who we think he is. But it is a reflection of the holiness of God and the righteousness of God who cannot tolerate sin. We see it flashing out of him here in this moment. Why was this such a big deal, you know? I mean, why did he go and turn all these tables or something? Again, many of you will know what's going on here. Some of you may not. But they, if they were going to purchase anything in the temple, and there were people that came by the thousands to the temple to worship in the, in the festival times and at other times of the year. And when they came into the temple, they had to buy or things to sacrifice, and they couldn't use their own money. So whatever currency you had, you had to exchange it in the temple for the temple currency. Okay, this was an incredible racket. So, so money exchanging, and some of you have done that where you've traveled somewhere and you need to get that money. And, 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 and when, you're, when you got to have it, you can be really taken advantage of, right? That's what was going on here. And so in the exchange of the money, the people that were doing that were charging exorbitant amounts and they were fleecing the people. And it ultimately is always the poor that get it the worst, always. The people that have the least are the ones that get victimized the most. And Jesus sees this and he senses this and he knows what's going on. And there's so many other levels of corruption happening in the temple worship. I don't have time to go into all of it. Now, that's just a, a, a diagram of what the temple mount would have looked like. Herod's temple was absolutely a spectacular building. And, and the elevation and the whole thing, if you read the history of the building of the temple, uh, the second temple, Herod's temple, is phenomenal. That, that wall, and then you've got that large courtyard you see going in. We get in eventually to the actual temple itself. But that large courtyard on the outside, which was referred to as the courtyard of the Gentiles or the court of the Gentiles. Anyone could come into that court. So people came from all over the world, different places, men, women, and they came into that court. That is most likely where this money changing and we they had to buy spotless lambs because their lambs weren't spotless enough. But we just happened to have spotless lambs here, right? And we for a price, we can provide you for one. This is what is going on. So they're probably moving around in that area. 
If you know anything about the temple, it gets narrower and narrower as you go. You go within that to the, the, uh, the, the hall of the women or pardon me, the court of the women. And then there was the court of, of, of Israel, which would include the men. And then eventually there was the court of the priests and eventually you get into the temple itself. So there's these barriers all along, but somewhere, maybe all over in that Gentile courtyard, this stuff is going on and Jesus comes in like a wrecking ball and he drives the people out. I want you to picture this chaotic scene, dust flying, people yelling, and here he is coming in. It is an act of purification against the corruption and the sin that was there and the abuse of what was going on. Here it is, you ready? In the name of God. The abuse and the corruption in the name of God. We never hear anything about that these days, do we? Abuse and corruption in the name of God, in the name, not of Christ then, but in our day, even in the name of Christ, right? And as Jesus does this, it is, it, is, it is an act of purification. Secondly, I think it's an act of provocation against these evil authorities. Again, the priesthood so incredibly, intensely corrupt. You would think, how in the world could these people be in a place of authority when their hearts were so far from God? And here is the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, poking the bear of the religious authorities. And, and, and I don't, it, this is not just a careless daring them, daring them to do something. I'm convinced Jesus knows the timing, the Passover, the cross. It is a provocation to instigate them to get to the point, the tipping point, where they're going to say, this is it, we have to kill this guy. The only way we're going to stop him is to kill him. And all of that is in the mind of Jesus. But when I think about this scene, when you think about the scene and you struggle with this and how could Jesus do that? And it seems so violent and he's actually angry and anger is always a horrible thing. What you have to see here is how seriously God takes sin. How seriously he takes sin and hypocrisy and abuse. And there, there is a warning here to all of us who lead in any capacity. You could be a leader in your home, in your church, in your workplace, wherever you have leadership or authority or influence of any sort to take advantage of the vulnerable. God hates that. He despises it. And here we see the anger of God flashing out against it. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Not sure if we're going to make it through this passage or not. I think maybe we will. We'll see. Who is this? Who is this? We'll at least get this far anyway. So, so he goes in, he, he cleans house in the temple, he drives them out, and then it's like, now let's really do what this house is all about. But what, what is God about? What, what is the heart of God? What, 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 is the, what is this place all about and what does it represent? We find it in verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And here we see the heart of God for what? For the lowly, for the poor, for the insignificant, for the people that were the outcasts, the people that had it all together, that had the status and the money and the power and the influence, he's driven them out. And it's like, here's what this place is all about, to minister to these people. And he's doing, if you could, could, could the very essence of what it is, that God's heart is for people and those in need, meeting those needs. And in verse 15, the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did. What wonderful things? When he drove them out? No, not that. The miracles and the people being healed. 
and Jesus ministering to them. They saw it, and they repented of their hard hearts, and they trusted Jesus and believed in him. That's not what it says, is it? And they saw the children crying out in the temple, saying, <laughs> here it is again, Hosanna, save now, son of David. That must have just goaded them, right? These religious leaders. Like, we heard that, and he came in, and he caused an uproar, and he's taken control of the temple, and he's driven the, and, 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 and they're watching this. Now we've got little children, little children crying this out, verse 16. Do you hear what these are saying? I love the answer of Jesus. Yes. Yeah, I hear it. Do you have a problem with that? Are they saying something inappropriate? Are they somehow being disrespectful to me, not to me, to you? Yes. Have you never read, and he quotes out of Psalm 8, that awesome, beautiful psalm, Psalm 8, verse 2, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. He's, he's taking the praise because he's worthy of it, because it's his house, because he's son, he's son of God, he is the Messiah, and here is, and, and their reaction to that is indignance. They were indignant. Last week we saw this exact same word in the Greek, and it's not, we're reading English translations, so it's different. But back in verse 24 of chapter 20, the ten heard it. Remember James and John? <laughs> we, we want to be on your right hand, your left hand. We want those like plum positions in the kingdom. Will you do that for us? And their mom's behind it, and they're in there. And the ten, the reaction of the ten, remember, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. Do you remember what the definition of that was? Let me tell you what it well, is right there on the screen violent irritation. It, it, it is the idea of this grief inside of them. They are so upset about what is going on here, this indignance, this violent reaction against Jesus in this moment. As like, what do we do about this? Because what terrible thing is he doing? Healing the sick? Hard to charge them for that, arrest them on that ground. Praise of children, they're upset about that, but it's hard to do anything about that. Think about the little children. Remember we talked about them two weeks ago, chapter 19, verse 14. Do not forbid them, Jesus says, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And he loved the praise of those little children whose hearts were pure and innocent, and they saw him for who he was, and they had an eye on the kingdom of heaven. Here are the religious leaders. Think about this who have claimed to represent God, and they have no idea who it is that's standing in front of them, who they are indignant with. They were losing, right? They have now lost control of the temple. Their authority has been challenged. Their credibility before the people is in jeopardy. Back in verse 10, when Jesus came down off of the mountain, he comes into the city, it says, all the city was moved. And some of the people are saying, who is this? Who is this? Was he the liar? Remember C.S. Lewis? Liar. Was he the lunatic? Was he out of his mind? Was he delusional, insane? I mean, and, and they could have spun that. Well, you're a liar, you're an imposter. That's what they're thinking, right? Or you're out of your mind. Or, or is he? Is he the Lord? And their refusal to believe 
I think is represented in that fig tree incident. I'm not going to go into the details of that incident. We read it where he comes to the fig tree. He goes to Bethany. I think he probably spends the night at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. We don't know that for sure, but most likely that's where he went in Bethany. Bethany's only three kilometers away. It's not a long walk. The next day he comes back and in, in the process of time, there's the fig tree and there's no fruit on this tree. It's got leaves, but no fruit. And it is an object lesson of faith and praying faith and believing. And Jesus talks about that. And some people see the fig tree thing. It's just about faith and about prayer. That's all there is. Maybe that's all there is. I think there's more. In the context of where that happens, I think it's an object lesson of a heart that's hard against God. Will not believe. Refuse to believe. They are literally watching Jesus perform miracles in the temple, and they will not believe, and their heart is hard. And I think in the cursing of that fig tree, there's something symbolic there about Jesus saying, the hardness of the heart brings you to the point where there is no fruit, and there's no hope of fruit. You are a lost cause. And within 40 years, 40 years, roughly from this point, the city would be leveled. It would be destroyed. And the Romans would come with their armies and they would tear the walls down over the months of the siege under the Roman general at the time, Titus, who would later become emperor, and they would devastate that city and destroy the temple. The hardness of their hearts not to believe. Some did in that moment, but what were some were looking for the kingdom now, and when they understood the kingdom wasn't coming now, saved now, and Jesus wasn't going to do what they wanted to do now, they lost confidence and hope in him. And the hardness of the heart, I think, is represented in that story. I'm just going to throw this slide up. I'm just going to fly through it really quickly. This is the last one, pushing back against the authority. They come and they challenge Jesus at the next day. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? I love the meaning of the word authority. It speaks of liberty, freedom, power, the right to do things. And I want you to think about the fact that here are these religious leaders who think they're the authority. We're the authority in the house. And it's like Jesus is saying, no, you're not. I'm the authority. And they come and they push back against him. And although Jesus never directly brings that against them or directly presents himself, it, it, it indirectly you think of all these things that he's doing that are pointing to the fact that he is the son of God. He is the Messiah. He received honor as Messiah. He had taken charge of the temple. He received the praise from the children. He's teaching in the temple, and they challenge him on that thing, and they put the question to him by what authority, and Jesus puts the question back to them about John the Baptist, and they're caught, right? And they're stopped. And Jesus always has the upper hand. And inevitably, inevitably, how are we going to deal with this guy? We'll kill him. We will kill him. Someone next week will be speaking. I'm not sure who it is on the vine dresser, the parable of the vine dresser. And in that parable, the servants come and the servants come and eventually the, the landowner says, I'll send my son and they'll reverence my son. Jesus tells that parable literally minutes after this incident because he knows what's in their heart. They're going to kill him. Jesus must die in their mind. That's the only solution that we have to get rid of him. And he knows that. He knows it. He knows it. He knows it. 
he told his disciples before they even got to Jerusalem, they're going to crucify me. I will die, but I will rise again. Father, we just thank you so much for the Lord Jesus this morning. We thank you, Father, that he is the Son, he is the Christ, he is the Son of David, he is the Messiah, he is the Chosen, he is the Anointed One. Father, there's a day coming when he will establish a kingdom over this world. He will reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But we thank you so much that that day when he went into Jerusalem, he didn't go to do that. He went ultimately to die on a cross. The ultimate act of sacrifice and of service to lay down his life, to shed his blood for those people in that day, but for us as well. To, to bring a victory and to bring a deliverance and bring a salvation from sin and death and the consequence of all of that. And Father, if there's someone listening to this message this morning and they don't confidently know that Jesus is their Savior, that they can't say, I know Jesus, he's my Savior. I believed in him, I pray, Father, we pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would touch them and speak to them and that they would deal with that truth this morning. Who is this? Father, if they don't believe in him, we ask and pray that they would put their trust in him. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. We bring honor and glory to him in his own name. Amen.